Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Pathfinder podcast. I'm joined today by Greg Tarr from Inforex, an ML ops startup from Cork. Greg, it's great to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. Great to be on. Thanks for uh, introducing me and, uh, and having me on. For our listeners, you have an interesting background and story to this point. Can you give us a bit of your background and I suppose more so explain what Inforex does? Sure. Be delighted to. So uh, I guess, hello, I'm I'm Greg Tarr, the founder of Infrex. I guess my fascination with computers and, and software goes back for about as long as I can remember. I spent most of my life submerged in, in, in tech documentation, careening from like one project to another, learning new ways to build, design things, and I, I, I guess new ways to think. Software is all about uh, how, how you think about problems. I, I founded Infrex last year to build critical AI infrastructure infrastructure is something I love because the work that goes into it is exponentially compounded by the increased productivity of the, of its users. So like the way I think about it is each hour of work I put into infrastructure can save thousands of hours for its users. And uh, with that goal in mind, uh, Infrex's first product in the AI space is a, a model and framework agnostic, scalable and efficient deployment platform. So basically we allow AI teams to convert their pipelines into fully productionized services in about a single line of code. So, and you can also orchestrate those pipelines across any compute provider, including across our physical infrastructures. We have, we've got data centers and that's all with the goal of, of saving people time and money. Over the last few years, you've actually had a number of very high profile success stories, most notably being the BT Young Scientist exhibition. Can you tell us about your project for that and what happened afterwards and how that relates now to what Infrex is doing? Yeah, so uh, I've actually done, I think, five BT Young Scientist projects so far. And surprisingly, they weren't all in AI. They were quite diverse. So I started with microalgae bioreactors and the projects diverged to include chemical processes, assistive technology, age estimation, and then finally deepfakes. And the last one for which I won the whole competition. And that prompted me to drop out of high school or secondary school and found Infrex. The project was on improving the efficiency of state-of-the-art deepfake detection mechanisms. Kind of back then and probably even more recently, the deepfakes were becoming a real problem. There was like the um, the elections coming up and where people were producing deepfakes of political candidates saying and doing things that they they wouldn't necessarily say or do, and people were looking for for a solution to that. And one of the biggest problems was the solutions were costly, super, super expensive to do. Um, and I managed to, to decrease the cost by about uh, 10 times. So can you just explain before you go what a deepfake is for our listeners? Yeah, so a, a deepfake is a, a video or audio sample that is generated by artificial intelligence that is supposed to mimic an, a real life human. So you could, using defect technology, you could create a video of me or the queen or anyone else saying something. And, and you could basically use, the, use that, their faces as almost like a puppet and make them say things and, and do things. You can imagine how dangerous that is. National security and also just on an individual level, level like you can make a video of someone instructing their bank to do something or, or make a phone call impersonating someone. And there's been people scammed out of hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars using this technology. And we just can't detect it at the moment. I remember hearing one of the more amusing stories of, of deepfakes being used for audio was, didn't someone use deepfakes to imitate 
Jack Dorsey on Twitter? Yes, uh, Jack Dorsey. And I think my favorite one is of the Queen of England. There was a video going around of her dancing on a table, which is quite unqueen-like. So they could definitely be very funny. And I think they're like, they could be a force for good. And, and of course, a force for widespread harm. because They're very distributable. Anything that's distributable needs to be very uh, taken into careful consideration. People might want to see the Queen dancing, but, you know, democracy is kind of important too. <laughs> Do you mind if I ask more into deepfakes? Sure. So your project for the BT Young Scientist exhibition was to identify deepfakes, but how can you distinguish between deepfakes and real photographs? It is tremendously difficult, and there's a number of approaches that have been tried to be taken. One of the approaches I like most is kind of like fighting fire with fire. So AI is, sorry, deepfakes are generated with AI. I think the best way to detect these AI-generated pieces of media is with using AI to detect them. So if you create a data set of hundreds of thousands of deepfake videos and, and samples, and then hundreds of thousands of authentic videos, you can create an AI to learn the dis differences between them, even if those differences are indistinguishable from the human eye. And many people have tried to do this. And they get varying results, and it's not necessarily the most accurate version. In fact, I think the other very popular approach, I'm going to butch the pronunciation, it's photoplethysmography. And I, I only learned about this recently. I didn't apply it in the project, but essentially you can look at a person's face using a webcam, and every time their heart beats, their face changes hue very, very slightly. And if you can detect that heartbeat, you can tell that they're a real person. And and the whatever generates deepfakes is not smart enough to uh, have that sort of uh, what we call temporal consistency. And so they don't have heart, heartbeats. And you can get up to 95% accuracy with some of these, these models. And that I thought was just such a smart and out-of-the-box way of approaching such an issue. But my project was focused on the AI portion of that detection and optimizing those models as ruthlessly as possible. That's fascinating to think that you can measure someone's heartbeat by just simply the slight changes in tones in their face and use that as a way to authenticate images. Yeah. So you won the Young Scientist exhibition. What happened next after that? Well, uh, I dropped out of secondary school after that. I, I, I've been told that dropping out of school is quite risky, making it look like I'm quite reckless. But the fact of the matter is, after winning the competition, I was pretty much swarmed by companies trying to hire me, even though I was 17 at the time. And th th these were like just ridiculous salaries, like proper senior engineering roles with pretty large six figures attached. And, and it was it was kind of paralyzing to me. I was going like, what? Because I was doing the leaving cert at the time. I was like preparing for it at least. I hadn't done my mocks. And suddenly I was getting these job offers. And the reason I decided to drop out and not pursue college, the logic was, why would I go to college? Uh, it would be to get a job. <laughs> if I can already get a job, what's college useful for? Also, the other part and the mild bias of mine in the decision was Leaving cert is very stressful. <laughs> I didn't want to do it. COVID had kind of majorly impacted our ability to I don't think I was in school for two years uh, prior. So it was kind of a, a perfect storm. Dropped out and hoped for the best. Decided to start Infrex 
and raise some funds. And I think within two, within a month or two of winning the competition, I had raised 1.15 million uh, euros for Infrex. Um, and that was such a journey and such a learning curve as well. That's a, that, that's impressive. Congratulations. And like, it's a baptism of fire in a sense to jump from leaving cert into raising one and a half million in seed yes. funding. Yes, <laughs> baptism of fire is a good way to put that. It's certainly a, di- a different issue uh, than deepfakes, uh, managing teams and, and hiring people. And like, I went kind of went from never having paid tax in my life to having international accountants with six tax jurisdictions and, and like multiple continents. And yeah, I, I mean, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur, so I've been preparing my, myself mentally for uh, to make the decisions that you have to make as a CEO. It wasn't like, a, oh, I just want to do this now. I've kind of wanted to be a CEO since I was five or six or something. So very much a work in progress. So we hear a lot about ML ops. It's been quite a big term lately. There's a lot of companies working on it, a lot of new platforms coming out on the area. Can you explain to our listeners what ML ops is and why it's important in terms of enabling your data science team? Right. So ML ops stands for machine learning model operalization management. Uh, and it's, it's a set of practices that aims to standardize how one deploys and maintains production grade models uh, in a reliable and efficient manner. Uh, so the word is kind of a compound between the common software practice of DevOps, development operations, and machine learning. And the reason we make the distinction is that the systems commonly built for machine learning are vastly different to those built by software. Uh, so you're doing completely different things, but in the same way, the same, same mindset. So for machine learning, you have to do things like data collection, data processing, feature engineering, data labeling, model design, model training, optimization, and endpoint deployment and endpoint monitoring. And I think that's eight steps. And each step in the machine learning lifecycle is built in its own system. But unfortunately, and this is a major point of tension, requires interconnection with all of the other parts, all those other eight systems. So those eight-ish categories are minimal systems that enterprises need in order to scale machine learning within their organization. Okay, so how then do the current MLOps platforms that are being developed help companies optimize their pipeline? I'm I'm seeing a, a growing trend of ML pipelines becoming more and more complex, even besides the obvious growth of ML architectures. Like the, the models themselves are getting uh, larger and more complex, but I'm talking about the extra stuff, the stuff surrounding the models are becoming complex. Uh, we're starting to see business logic becoming increasingly coupled with AI-driven insights. Uh, and this is making the productionization of systems that rely on these far more difficult. Right? A good example might be uh, pulling in s- something from a database and pulling insights from, from AI and trying to make decisions off those. And we're starting to see AI being used sequentially. So one AI makes a decision, another AI makes a decision, and then a database has some data and you have to draw. And then another AI model is drawing that information to make a new insight and kind of like stacking models. Um, and other pipelines. And that's why at Infrex, we make a distinction between model serving and pipeline serving, where models are just the AI and pipelines are kind of a more generalized component of compute. I, I see a lot of people moving in that direction as well. I think it's a smart 
um, direction. So what do we do with this this complexity that, that we're being faced with? I think the best cure to complexity is standardization. We need to begin imposing the same level of rigorous standards to the productionization, deployment, and management of machine learning models as we have done already to services, software, SaaS products, uh, security, even even so far down the stack as hardware orchestration and management. We have we have systems in place that if I were to build a data center and you were to build a data center, if we were adhering to standards, they'd be the same, roughly the same data center. And this can have so many benefits to the industry. Right now, if you hire an ML engineer, there's almost almost certainly he doesn't know how you're deploying your models. He doesn't know how you're monitoring them. He's not using the same tools. He's not using the same standards. Probably not even using the same underlying mathematical equations. That means there's months of retraining. That means there's months of tension. And it means maintenance and management and reliability goes down drastically. So this can only be done through the development of platforms like Infrex to take the responsibilities of MLOps away from data scientists and engineers and put it in the hands of people whose job it is to, to excel at those parts. And this, this just saves everybody time uh, and, and allows there to be a single point of improvement. I'm, I'm not suggesting Infrex to be the only solution anyone ever has. I think these standards need to be heavily interoperable. I think I made a, a point about those, those eight different categories needing to be interconnected. And I, I see a growing trend with, I suppose, my competitors now, but just software in the space, trying to compete with the ecosystem and not being a part of it. And I, I think we need a, a little bit more friendly interactions in it uh, so that the software can, can kind of be used. Because uh, at the end of the day, developers will use the tools that they love to use, and you can't really do anything about that. Yeah, it's interesting. The point you made there about we need more friendly interactions because this tends to be a very heated topic. Anytime you start to try and tell developers how to change the way they're doing things, tensions get high and egos get bruised. Yes. So yeah, it's it's fascinating to, to hear about your approach of trying to do this with a platform to kind of set yes. the standard. I mean, developers are probably the most opinionated of all types of engineers. I'm sure even they have opinions about that statement. And navigating that is only possible by providing a service that is so obviously beneficial to them and everyone else. So so on standard, even though we don't have standards, that it, it will survive for years to come, that developers can invest and, and, and trust that their time invested in learning these standards will give them a job for the years to come because everyone's afraid, right? If, if their opinion is wrong, uh, they get backlash, they lose their job uh, or they, their, their job security goes down. Um, I guess points like those are going to become even more prevalent. I think the debates around uh, this space are going to become even more fiery as the market takes these downturns and as layoffs happen, you know, everyone's going to be so uh, focused on proving that they're right, that they're not going to be trying to find the right answer. Um, and that's a dangerous and precarious nature of, of humanity, I suppose, at this time. 
Sure. And I think given the infinity of machine learning and data science, like it's a, there's a long road ahead. Um, like to me, there's an, and there's an analogy there with, and we've talked about it before on the podcast with Lean Sigma in manufacturing, uh, which was a standard that was really developed back like going 40 years ago. But yet it is still a big thing that hasn't been adopted into a lot of smaller manufacturing firms or even medium-sized manufacturing facilities. Yet the benefits of it have been demonstrated over and over again. I think we might see the same thing in the AI space, right? I'm not claiming to say that Infrex's standards and ways or approaches of thinking are correct. And I'm not saying anyone else is wrong, but what I am saying is that in 30 years time, someone will be the standard. Something will have an approach to solving these problems in an organized manner. There will be college courses that won't be so fragmented as they are today. I, I, I tutor some college uh, students and I'm always shocked by the differences in their courses. Some are remarkable. Some are kind of detached from the industry, which isn't surprising because professors aren't in the industry and th- that makes a little bit of a culture shock for the college students when they when they come into into the business right but yeah th- there's a lot of problems we need to solve and we need to solve them with a little bit of grace hopefully great well greg thanks very much for joining us today and sharing that with us i've certainly learned a lot and i think that's going to be something that's very useful for our listeners thank you very much for having me it was a super fun ride and that is it for this week's pathfinder podcast I would like to thank our guest, Greg Tarr again, for joining us today and telling us more about MLOps. Sadly, this is the last podcast of this series. We'll be taking a break for the summer holidays and we'll be back in September with some more interviews about applications of data and AI in industry. (music) 